You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Matthew 28, we're going to start reading with verse 16, read together this well-known passage. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for visiting us in Christ Jesus. We thank you, O Lord, for intruding in our lives, Father. Had you not intruded on our lives, Lord, we would have been happy to live a life without you. We would have been happy to maybe pay you lip service once in a while, but largely live as if you don't exist. We'd be happy to be on about our own thing. We'd be happy to be on about practically anything except for living a life consecrated to you. Well, Father, we even confess that even as you open our eyes to see you and call us, O Lord, in a state of grace, Father, that we still default so easily to that previous disposition. We pray, Father, as we look to your word this morning, that, Father, you'd be pleased to speak to our hearts this morning, that you'd be pleased, O Father, to open our hearts and minds to your word, that we would not just hear the voice of some man speaking, But, Father, through your word, you would speak to each one of us, and we would hear your voice, Lord. We do not need the opinions of men this morning, Lord. We need your truth. Oh, Father, we pray for your truth. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to receive your truth and work in our wills, that we would bend our wills to your truth and align our hearts, O Lord, in accordance with it for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of us, or all of us practically by now, know it's a special occasion this morning where we get to uh, look at um, the sacrament of baptism. And, you know, uh, I always, when when we're having these baptism services, I usually like to stop and do something that's out of the ordinary for us. Normally, what are we doing on a given Lord's Day morning? Well, we're just opening the Bible and just continuing verse by verse through either a letter uh, or a book, right? We start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we just work our way from beginning uh, to end, and that's normally what we do. And if anybody's um, concerned about it, there's a technical term for that known as lectia continua. Some of you know that term. And I, I think it's the, the, the finest and the best way, uh, actually, to, uh, to go through the books. Uh, that way, uh, the preacher is never stuck on one of his hobby horses. Um, it also 
It enables the pastor to grow with the congregation because trust me on this, I don't, I can't just open to any passage in scripture and just start rambling on and on and on. There's a lot of, it's a big book, isn't it? You ever notice that? I mean, it's a big book and it takes a long, a lifetime and there isn't a single one of us that's ever going to master this book. To master this book would be to master the mind of God and we're incapable of doing that. So and, and to me, and I think many of you will agree, that's going to be wonderful. Imagine being in the presence of Jesus and being able to learn every minute of every day for eternity and still not know everything. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? Um, that's what awaits the people of God. So the subject this morning is the sacrament of baptism. We hear about baptism from time to time, and from time to time, praise God that we get to observe baptism. What is baptism? Well, baptism is a sacrament. And some will say, well, that's not helpful. What is a sacrament? Well, that's why if you look in your bulletin, if you look in the uh, insert here uh, where you have the Christmas um, event, if you turn that over, you're going to notice that there's um, uh, Q&A for the week, Westminster Larger Catechism. Some of us are familiar with that. Probably most of us are familiar with that. Most of us are going to be familiar with the Shorter Catechism because we've taught through that a couple of times over the last 15 years. And But some of us might be like, what in the world is a catechism? What is the Westminster Larger Catechism? A catechism is something that's been used by the history of the church to teach uh, the truths in Scripture. And it's really effective. It's done so through a series of questions and answers. And you'll notice that uh, we have Q162. What that simply means is this is question 162, and that's why we call it the larger catechism. It isn't done yet, and it's still going strong at 165. So um, there's a lot of questions and answers in the larger catechism. But question 162 concerns what is a sacrament. Question 165 concerns what is baptism. And as I was thinking about, uh, and I'm always looking for new and fresh ways to teach on this subject, and I was thinking about it, if we're going to talk about baptism this morning, we should talk about the sacraments in general, or at least begin with the sacraments in general. Now, by way of housekeeping, I want to make this disclaimer, and this is really, really an important disclaimer. Our sermon text this morning is not, and let me emphasize that, it is not the larger catechism. Okay, everybody clear on that? That is not our sermon text. Now, why am, why am I wanting to make this distinction? Because our sermon text is going to be the Word of God. The catechisms are very helpful, but what they're designed to do is to take us into the Word of God. Well, some of us say, well, then what's the purpose of the catechism questions? Why are they in our bulletin? They're our outline. You know, uh, every, every Sunday I stand up here and I have an outline. Um, and that, that outline is not inspired, trust me on that. It's hardly inspired. What is the outline supposed to do? The outline is supposed to take us through Scripture. Our sermon text is always God's Word. Why is that so important? Because there is, through the history of church, even to this day, there are a lot of churches that have taken their tradition and taken various other writings and have exalted them almost to the same level or even in some cases above the level of God's Word. Now, let's think about this for a moment. If we believe this is God's Word, which I trust all of us believe, if, if someone's having any trouble with this, come and see me afterwards. You know, we're going to be having a dinner and some fellowship afterwards. I'll have time to talk to you. Anybody that wants to talk, come and talk to me if you're having trouble believing that this is the Word of God. But it's, let's, let's give that this is the Word of God. If this is God's Word, 
then what other possible word could trump this? What word could possibly be in any kind of contest with this for an ultimate authority? You follow me? So we look to the book is what we look to because we trust this is God's word. So I just want to say this at the beginning that, you know, a sacrament is, you know, um, 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 you know, hold that thought one second. I'm trying to do two things at once with my mind. For the benefit of everyone here this morning, I'm actually running a stopwatch here. And some of you who know me really well know exactly why I'm doing that. I expected some laughter, and uh, I deserve all of the laughter. Um, I could talk about this stuff until supper time. How many would like me to do that? You raise your hand. I know there's a couple of you who wouldn't mind if we could have some breaks once in a while, but I'm going to try to limit this. Um, as we look at this um, subject of baptism here, you know, we have what is baptism, question 165, what is a sacrament? You can see there's a lot of writing and a lot of points under these. We're not going to go in depth in each. Well, practically every one of these could be a sermon on a Sunday morning. I got the stopwatch running to remind me to try to be disciplined on this. But let's look at question 162 first. What is a sacrament? Notice what's said here in the answer. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church. Now, this is what we've read in Matthew 28, isn't it? We still have Matthew 28 open. And what does Jesus do? And a little bit of context here. What, what, what's the context of Jesus' words here? Jesus has already been to the cross. He's been crucified. Third day, he rises from the dead. He's making resurrection appearances. He's about to ascend to the Father, where he'll sit in session with the Lord Almighty in possession of absolute authority. And he gives this commission to his church. This is what the church is to be on about. What does he say in verse um, 19? When verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In verse 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So, and, and I say this, and this is important, as we think about the sacraments, it's important that we understand that these have been instituted by Christ that they've been ordained by Christ. So in other words, a group of folks didn't just get together on some Monday night or Wednesday night and say, you know, let's do something different. What do you think everybody would like? Well, I think it would be nice if we could just sprinkle them with some water or maybe dunk them in something, you know? I think uh, the f person being dunked might not like it, but I think everyone else would just think it's great. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but the sad thing is, Oftentimes, and some of you, some of you have been around the block, you know what I'm talking about. Oftentimes, that's how worship services are organized. They're organized around what people will like. They're organized around what people, you know, will get a kick out of. Now, I can tell you everything in our worship service has a biblical reason for it. We start with a call to worship. A call to worship is really important. What is the call to worship? The call to worship is a call by God to for us to gather together to do what? To look to him in adoration and reverence, to join together in, you know, in one accord. And we can go down to every, every single aspect of our service has a reason. And there's a, a word for that, actually two words. We call this the regulative principle, if you will, or we could say it this way. It's the regulative principle of worship. What does that mean? What it means is that God has ordained how he desires to be worshiped. And uh, what do we do? We look to the scriptures to ascertain those ways. 
and we order our service accordingly as best we're able. So we begin with a call to worship. We have prayer in our services. We have the singing of songs in our worship service. All these things are called, we're called to do in God's word. We have fellowship. We'll have fellowship afterwards. We have the preaching of God's word. And we have the sacraments of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. These have both have been instituted by Christ for his church. Now, one thing that's really important as we're thinking about the sacraments is these two things do not happen in a vacuum. Let's start with the Lord's Supper because it's always been easier. When I was learning this, it was easier for me to see the Lord's Supper. You know, the Lord's Supper doesn't come to us in a vacuum, does it? It has a rich heritage behind it known as Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, God, he instructs Moses to lead the people of God in the sacrament of Passover, if you will. Now, what is, you know, he's about to afflict Egypt with the 10th and final plague, which will be the killing of the firstborn. And he says to Moses, he says, listen, I want you to tell everybody, get the head of households together, have them sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of that lamb, and that lamb had to be of a certain specification, take the blood of that lamb, paint it across the, the doorpost and down the, the lintel, if you will. And the angel of destruction, when he comes in this particular night, when he sees the blood, he will pass over the house. Let's stop right there for a moment. In my pastoral prayer, I ask the Lord to help us to begin to see things more communally. Okay, so a head of household takes a lamb of a certain specification. He sacrifices it. He takes its blood. He paints it across the top of the door and down the side of the door. And the angel of destruction sees the blood and passes over the entire household. You see the community there? Okay, that's pointing us to Christ. In fact, when Jesus comes during early in his earthly ministry, John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Christ, sees Jesus coming at one point. And what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. You see, so that, 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 whole, uh, that whole sacrament, if you will, pointed to Jesus and pointed to his benefits. Make sense? So on the night of Jesus' arrest, when he's having a supper with his disciples, we call it the Last Supper, what does Jesus do? At one point, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says to everybody, look, this bread is my body broken for you. I wasn't saying this bread is literally my body. I think we all would have understood that easily enough. It's an object lesson in many ways. We could call it an object lesson. This is my body, which is broken for you. You Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. And what is he doing there? He's instituting what we call the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which resumes, it takes place. After the crucifixion of Jesus, the slaughter of lambs is no longer appropriate because the lamb with a capital L has been sacrificed. All of the lambs with the lowercase l come and pointed to Jesus' coming, right? And anticipated Christ's coming now that Jesus has come. Okay, we don't, I'm really thankful this morning I didn't have to slaughter anything. That's really nice. I, I would really struggle to do that. I'm really happy we haven't had to do that. Now, 
baptism, when we think about baptism, that doesn't happen in a vacuum either. And someone might have thought it'd be strange. Why are we reading from Genesis 17 at a baptism service? Now, some of you know that's not strange, but some of us might think that's strange. What's circumcision got to do with a baptism service? Well, circumcision, and this is something Tyler knows pretty well because we've been through Genesis 17 quite a bit. Um, Circumcision provides the backdrop, if you will, for baptism in many respects, doesn't it? Let's think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Most of us know the story, you know, the story of eating the forbidden fruit. Um, Adam, um, you know, Eve actually uh, is deceived by Satan, and she eats from the, the, the tree that is forbidden. She eats that fruit. Adam is with her. He also eats. And what happens? What happens is all humanity plunges into darkness. That's why we have this dangerous world we're in. That's why we have these prayer requests that we're praying for this morning. That's why we have cancer. That's why we have trauma. That's why we have accidents. That's why we have all of these terrible things that we have to endure. It's because sin is because of our our corporate rebellion against God, right? And in Genesis 3.15, you don't need to turn there. We're going to be turning to a lot of passages this morning. I'll just read it for you. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. He comes after after Adam and Eve sin against God. He, uh, he first talks to the man, and then he talks to, he talks to Adam, then he talks to Eve, and then he talks to Satan, who's the one who deceives them. And in verse 15, he makes this promise. We call it the first gospel promise in Scripture. Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in case you want to know what the rest of the Bible is about, It's really about God making good on that promise. Does that make sense? Because ultimately, how is this promise carried out? This promise is carried out in a son. If you listen to this verse really closely, God says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you, that is Satan and the woman, that is Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, who is ultimately her offspring? Well, he is the one that shall bruise his head. He's the one who shall, uh, as other translations say, crush his head. Who is he? He's none other than Christ Jesus. So we have a promise of a son all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And what is the Bible about? It's about God making good on that promise, isn't it? It's about him making good on that promise. And in Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham. And what is he doing? He's fleshing out this promise further and further. And he says to to, uh, Adam, or to uh, Abraham, uh, in Genesis 17, I want you to ma- I want you to take your household and I want you to circumcise all the males in your household from eight days of age. So we're talking infants, eight days old, all the way up. And I want you to circumcise them. That might sound strange. What's circumcision? That might sound strange to us. But let's think about it in context of Adam falling in the garden. When Adam falls in the garden, all humanity falls with him. And as a consequence, when we are born into this life, we share in his corruption. You know, I like to put it this way. That's why none of us have to teach our children to be bad. And that's why none of us had to be taught to be bad. Has anybody here had to be taught to be? I mean, you can be taught to be worse. That's for sure. 
But is anybody, is, is any parent here in the, this morning ever said, you know, little Junior's awful good. I wish he'd be bad once in a while. Has anybody said that? Nobody's saying anything. Move on, Pastor. We'd like to move on. I think you know my, my point here. Um, so what is God doing? Well, in, in Genesis 17, what is he doing? He's calling Abraham to circumcise the foreskin of the flesh of all the males. Now, what is that all about? That points to the fact that this sin is inherited by our fathers, doesn't it? And it's putting it off. It's putting it off. In other words, it's intruding in it. It's a putting it off. And the new is being put on. Does that make sense? Sort of. Okay, we also know, as we survey Scripture, we know that circumcision also stands for repentance. You know, to circumcise your heart, in other words, that phrase is used throughout Scripture for repentance. Circumcise your heart. So it's repentance. Another use for circumcision is what we call in theology regeneration. It's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. We've seen it on billboards around the nation's highways. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's Jesus speaking to a man named Nicodemus. And what is Jesus talking about there? What he's talking about there is this secret inward work that only God can do. In our scripture memory verse, we talked about a circumcision made without hands. What is a circumcision made without hands? Physical circumcision involves hands. And I realize today you can do a, most, a lot of surgeries are done from what I understand. Really, a doctor has a surgeon has a joystick in his hand, right? And he's doing it with lasers and stuff. But you know, in the ancient time, circumcision is certainly performed by hands. But this particular circumcision is performed without hands. What is God talking about? He's talking about the inward work of the heart, which is necessary for us to see the Lord. You know, it's like someone comes to me with the, the gospel and they, say, they share the gospel and they share Christ with me and I just kind of go like this. I just gloss over. But then God works through the gospel proclamation in my heart and suddenly your eyes are open and your ears are unstopped. Some of you have been converted in adult and know what I'm talking about, don't you? That's that secret inward work. And circumcision speaks to that secret inward work. Now, some of you are probably connecting the dots already, and I know many of you already know this stuff, but when you start connecting the dots, you say, well, you know, this sounds a lot like baptism. That's because baptism takes over. Baptism resumes. Jesus at one point in his earthly ministry says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how much is my anguish until it's accomplished? That's Luke chapter 12, verse, 20, or verse 50. And what's Jesus referring to? He's referring to the cross. And it's at the cross where circumcision and baptism join. So baptism is a sacrament. It's a holy ordinance. It's instituted by Christ in his church. Notice question 162 has these three words here that are pretty important, that signify, seal, and exhibit, if you will, uh, unto those that are within the covenant of grace. What is the covenant of grace? Let's get that out of the way real quick. The covenant of grace, we first see it in Genesis 3.15, the verse I read to you with the promise of a son. And we see that fleshed out. And we especially see that fleshed out in Abraham's life where God makes this covenant with Abraham um, and gives him the covenant sign of circumcision, this covenant of grace. Let me read another passage for you. In fact, if you want, you can turn there to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Be page 8 if you're using the church's Bible. 
In Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And notice this last, and many of you know, you've heard me say this many times. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Look what God says to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, how does God make good on that promise? Same way. It's what he promised in Genesis 3.15. It's the promise of a son. You ever wonder why Matthew, why the New Testament begins with this genealogy of names we can't pronounce? It's to show that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise that in Jesus all the families of the earth will be blessed. That includes the Holland family, the Bean family, the Hall family, the Pilate family, the Wells family. We could just go down the list, couldn't we? Here we are sitting 6,000 6, miles away. And how many years away? 4,500 years away? 4,000 years away? And here we're blessed. Isn't that wonderful? So what is the covenant of grace? Look with me to Leviticus 26, 12. I'll give you a page number as soon as I get there. Leviticus 26, and verse 12. Page number 105, 26, verse 12. Oftentimes when we think of the covenant of grace, we think of these words right here. Leviticus 26, verse 12. God makes a promise to his people. He says, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I will walk among you, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Again, this is the same promise being fleshed out. What is God promising to do? He's promising to go to a bunch of broken sinners like ourselves and transform us into his people. He's promising to dwell with us, and he's promising to be our God. Let's think about that for a moment before we move on, because I think too often it doesn't ever occur to us that God wouldn't desire to be our God. I think too often, Simon, and it's, it's a bit of arrogance on our part to think that way. If we, would, if we wake up in the morning and we say, oh, Lord, why wouldn't you want to be our God? Well, you know what? We should be able to come up with a lot of reasons for that. It really is an amazing thing that God would say, you know, I want to be, I want to be your God. And this is, uh, this is out of natural consequence is going to mean, I want you to be my people. Let's think about that for a minute. Let's pull off along the road because this is a beautiful scene and let's take a look at it for a moment because we're a mess, aren't we? We're a mess. And a lot of times some of you come to me and you come to me weeping and you come to me and you, you share what a mess it is and what do I usually do in response? I usually tell you, hey, I'm a mess too. Guess what? I am a mess. And the fact that God would want the likes of me to be in the fold is absolutely amazing. 
But what is God doing? He has come in the person of Christ, and he's gathering a bunch of people that are a mess. And he's fixing that mess and transforming that mess into his glorious church. And in case you think this is just an Old Testament thing, I want you to turn to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. To page 1041, if you're using the church's Bible. And what is, what is John? John's given a vision of the end, you know. He's given a vision of when the new heavens and the new earth are coming, you know. Very last, second to the last chapter of the Bible, if you will. Revelation 21. Still her page is turning, so you take your time. Look at this wonderful statement. As John is seeing the new heavens and the new earth, he hears in verse 3 a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the what? The dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Some will say, that sounds like Leviticus 26, 12. That's exactly right, because what do we learn from this? We learn that we've got this covenant of grace that begins, at least as far as we can tell, it begins in Genesis 3, 15, and goes all the way through Revelation 21. And it does so under two different administrations. We could say the old administration that looks forward to Jesus coming and the new administration in which we're presently in that looks back to Jesus who has come. And in the old administration, you had two sacraments. You had Passover, and what was the other one? Circumcision. After Jesus' crucifixion, the ordinances change. They change to what? The Lord's Supper and baptism. There's no bloodshed in the New Testament ordinances. Notice that? It's inappropriate now that Jesus has shed his blood. So you see, if we go back to question 162, what is a sacrament? It's a holy ordinance instituted by Christ and his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace. Okay, signify, seal, and exhibit. What is that all about? Signify. How do we What is meant by the signify? Turn with me to Romans. And by the way, for those of you who are visiting, we normally don't turn our Bibles around this much. You might say, Rick, you're turning us everywhere. I'm sorry, it's a topical message. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, page 941, if you will. Normally, we're pretty much camped out on one verse. We We do move around sometimes, but not like this. Romans chapter 4, verse 11 the larger catechism is not our sermon text this morning. It's our outline. The sermon texts are varied. They're coming from many parts of God's Word. Romans 4, verse 11, speaking of Abraham, the Apostle Paul is the author of Romans. He says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal. Notice the word sign, the sign of circumcision. Okay, circumcision is a sign. What does a sign do? A sign points to something, doesn't it? You know, if you've, you know, if you can think back as a young man and you see a special lady and she looks really cute and you're like, boy, I think I'd like to take her out to her favorite restaurant. Um, maybe you've never been there, but there's a sign. And how impressed would she be if you just simply took her to the sign and said, hey, there's the sign for your favorite restaurant and then called it a night? How well would that go? Yeah. Ladies are laughing harder than the guys. <laughs> The sign points to something, doesn't it? Let's always remember that about the sacraments. They point to something. A sign points to something. 
You know, we can think about baptism. What do we use in baptism? We use water. And in a few moments, we're going to see how that um, signifies things. So we have a sign. The, uh, uh, the sacraments are signs, if you will. They're also seals. Notice in Romans 4, verse 11, that Abraham had the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. If you're not very familiar with this, that might, that might be saying, boy, this is a lot of information. And it is a lot of information if you're not accustomed to it. And let me speak to that really quickly. Don't let that bother you. Just take what you can. I, I tell folks that all the time. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that to people that visited his congregation way back in the day. They'd come in and they would just be completely overwhelmed with what they heard. And he'd say, listen, come back next week. Come back next week. In four or five months, you won't feel that way no more. Because when you're first hearing it for the first time, you're getting all these categories and they're all new. So I just want to say that by word of encouragement. You keep coming back and that will slowly go away. But a seal in ancient times, some of you have watched movies where the context is, you know, three, four hundred years ago. Someone writes a letter. What do they do? They fold the letter and they take a little bit of wax, usually a candle maybe that they're, they're working by, and they dip some of the wax on the, on the letter to seal it shut, right? And then maybe you've seen them take a ring or maybe something they're wearing around their, their neck, and they push it into the wax. And what does that do? That authenticates the letter that it really did come from the person who it's supposed to have come from. You know, Now, if this was done by a king, you dare not open that letter. If you're given that letter to deliver somebody, you dare not open that letter. Uh, that letter is to go to the person you're supposed to give it to. Why? Because the seal authenticates it. In fact, we could even put it this way. It legally certifies it. So the sacraments are seals, if you will, that legally certify, we could say. Or another way we could talk about it is a pledge. It's a pledge. Now, how does that work? Well, it works this way. I mean, if we think about water baptism... Probably the first thing we think about is washing, because that's what we use typically when we're getting a shower, right? Getting a shower. And just as water washes the dirt away from your body, what does baptism signify? It's signifying the remission of sins. It's signifying that our sins are washed away. How are they washed away? Not by the sacrament itself. It's important to understand. Fellas, think of taking your, your sweetheart to the sign. You know, to the sign that points to the restaurants. He's not going to be too impressed. If you, when you get to that sign, you better keep going. Better turn in the direction it's pointing. The sacraments are that way. They're a sign. They're pointing. How are our sins taken away? Not by the mechanical act of baptism. They're, you know, I'm making some jokes, but there's people that believe that, and it's a dangerous thing to believe. Baptism is not our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus dies on the cross. And sometimes you, you'll hear the statement, washed in the blood of Christ. What does that mean? The blood, is, the blood stands for his death. That we're literally washed by his death. Now, how does that seal this for us? Think about it for a moment. Think about it for a moment. A certainty. It's a certainty. Just as water washes dirt away from you, so does the blood of Christ, wash away our sins. If you're looking to him in faith, you have to be looking to him in faith. We'll get to that 
a little bit more. Let's look at the word exhibit. What's the word exhibit mean? When we see exhibit, you know, question 162, you know, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ and his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace, the benefits of his mediation. What is exhibit? I think when we think of the word exhibit, we're thinking about an exhibit. You know, last Friday I was at a quite an exhibit. I was in this room with a whole bunch of vintage guitars. There was quite, a vi- quite an exhibit there. Uh, I think I might have been there for three hours, I think. Um, quite an exhibit. A lot of times we think of exhibit as showing forth. But I don't think that's what the framers of the catechism meant. A.A. A. Hodge, in his commentary many, many years ago, he made the case that what's being, exhibit, what's being uh, said with the word exhibit is to apply. And the shorter catechism, of which we're more familiar with, does use the words represented, sealed, and applied. Okay, so how is this application to take place? This application takes place as we come to the sacraments with true faith. And what is being applied? Well, one of the reasons, you know, Donald's already made an announcement that we're going to go in the back, we're going to gather everybody and come forward before this baptism takes place. Now, why are we going to do that? Well, one, we want everyone to see, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is that God uses these ordinances as what we call a means of grace. What's a means of grace? It's just an instrument upon which the Lord uses to share his favor upon us. Bible reading is a means of grace. Preaching is a means of grace, although you might not think it right now. Man, was this guy going to get done? Preaching is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. All of these things are a means of grace. Guess what? Even though most of us aren't the ones being baptized this morning, it's still a means of grace to us. It exhibits this, if you will, when it's done in faith. When we're looking to the Lord in faith, what does it serve to do? It serves to strengthen us. Notice that's the next thing in question 162. It's important that we understand this. To strengthen and increase their faith in all other graces. We want everybody to be in here. That's why, you know, once a month we have we, we um, observe the Lord's Supper. There's been no frequency given in Scripture. Um, some of our friends make the argument for doing it each week. We've talked about it. We just haven't made that decision and may someday in the future make that decision. But we do it once a month. And when we do it, we serve communion to those who are with our kids in the back, don't we? Why? It's a means of grace. To what? To strengthen and increase our faith in the same way that the gospel is a means of grace. The gospel doesn't do you any good if you don't receive it by faith. It does you no good. Same way, the sacraments do us no good unless we receive them by faith. And therefore, when they're received by faith, they're truly exhibited. They're applied to us, if you will. And the old preachers used to preach, and, and, and this is kind of an indictment on myself, I need to say this more often, is we should look back to our baptism to do what's sometimes called improving our baptism. We don't have time to get into all of that, but maybe I should preach on that from time to time. Uh, how do we improve upon our baptism? How many have thought about your own baptism in the last week? And see, this is, a, you know, this is an indictment against me. I'll take it. It's a deficit. I should be... I should be um, uh, calling your attention to that, and I'm failing you in that department. My apologies. But we should be looking back to our baptism. Why? Because in our baptism, what is it? God's holding out all his promises, isn't he, in his baptism? And we're going to get to those promises here in a moment. In fact, um, let's look at one last thing, and we're going to go through 165 much quicker. Um, 
162, a sacrament's a holy ordinance instituted by Christ and his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation to strengthen and increase their faith in all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion one with another. Notice this very last line. I'm skipping over a few things here, but this last line, to distinguish them from those that are without. Baptism, just like circumcision, circumcision was a permanent mark on the body. And it was a distinguishing mark. It it was a mark that brought a person into covenant with God. Baptism is the same way. That's why we don't baptize over again. We only baptize once. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't rebaptize anyone. Because once you're baptized, there's a permanent mark put on your soul. Now, let's suppose somebody baptized me and I don't have faith the time I'm baptized. You know, and in the course of baptizing adults, we ask for a profession of faith. You know, I've spent a lot of time with Tyler and Katie talking about that, you know, about faith. When adults are coming for baptism, we want to shoot people, try the best we can to see if they're walking in grace. But let's suppose I'm being examined. I want to be baptized, but I'm not really, my faith isn't true saving faith. Is my baptism going to be null and void? No. No, 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 no. No, my baptism still preaches to me. What does it preach to me? It says, listen, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, just as water washes the dirt off your body, so does Christ take your sins away. But if your faith, Rick, isn't really in Christ, your baptism still continues to preach to you, doesn't it? It can strengthen and comfort, or it can also condemn. Does that make sense? It's not null and void. So we don't do it over again. Now let's go to question 165. What is baptism? I think it's going to be easier. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. That's what we had in Matthew 28, right? Jesus commands His church to go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. To be a sign and seal of, and notice the following. Let's take a look at these things here um, following there. Of rem- and I'm going to take these uh, slightly out of order just to make them easier for us. Uh, remission of sins. I think that's the easiest one for us to get. Acts 22. Let's take a look at Acts 22, verse 16. This only take us a few more minutes here. 22, verse 16. Page 932 if you're using the church's Bible. And the context here is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was once a persecutor of the church. Jesus reveals himself to Paul. He's blinded by Jesus' glory. And then Ananias is summoned to come to him and to uh, speak to him. And Ananias says to him in Acts 22, verse 16, you know, this is Paul's recounting of what happened there. He says, why do you wait, Paul? Rise and be baptized. And what? Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, many trip over verses like this, because if you just look at this verse and you don't consider anything else, you can say, look, well, baptism, baptism is the cause of the washing away of sins. You can get that from there, can't you? The only problem is that interpretation doesn't withstand the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture. And one thing we need to understand is the sign and that which is signified is very close in Scripture. So close that they can be used as synonyms. For example, the covenant in Genesis 17 is referred to as circumcision. Circumcision is referred to the covenant. 
Peter says very famously, baptism which now saves you. Sometimes people will quote that verse to say, well, baptism is what saves you. Baptism is not what saves you. Fellas, take your ladies to that sign along the road. It has her favorite restaurant on it. Stop there and see how that works. Okay, that sign is not going to serve the meal that is her favorite meal. It points to it. Baptism points. It's not our Savior. It points to Christ who is our Savior. And one of the things it points to is the washing of our sins. If we want to think about improving our baptism, especially if you're feeling a little beat up because of how things have gone over the past week, look back to your baptism. Look back to your baptism. Because it's a sign. It's a sign of what? Washing. Washing. Anytime you feel dirty, if you're in Christ, look back to your baptism. Because in God's eyes, you have been cleansed. The evil one would want to convince you that you're filthy dirty. You're filthy dirty. Look at you. But we look back to our baptism, and what do we see? If, you receive, if you've received Christ in faith, receive your baptism in faith. Let it be a sign. Let it be a seal. Let it be an exhibit of the great grace that we have in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. But it also preaches to us. What if our faith isn't in Jesus? Well, then great. It's a wonder. It, it's a prophet now. It speaks to us as a prophet. Doing what? Calling us to put our faith and trust in Christ, doesn't it? You know, as we here in a couple of minutes, we're going to be observing baptism. And listen, all of us, as we, as we look to Tyler, as we look to Aubrey, as we look to Hawk, let's all of us think of our own baptism if you've been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, let's talk after the service, okay? Second thing, in grafting of sin, or I'm sorry, in grafting unto himself. Uh, Galatians 3.27. I'm taking these a little bit out of order, so we'll just kind of go through them a little bit quicker. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27. Page 974, if you're using the church's Bible. You know, most of you are familiar with these passages. We've been spending a lot of time in these passages. Verse 26 and 27. Verse 27, for as many of you as were what? Baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What's that pointing to? That's pointing to what we call union in Christ. What's important? What's, why is that so important? Faith doesn't save us any more than baptism does, but what faith does, saving faith, is brings us in union with him who does save us. The moment you put your faith and your trust in Christ, you're brought into union with Christ. And guess what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is now yours. That's, that's Ephesians 1. Faith brings us into union with Jesus. Baptism is a sign of that union. If you're feeling like you're out of sorts with God, look back to your baptism. What does your baptism signify? It signifies being in union with Jesus. He lives to make intercession for each one of us. Do you know that? He lives to make intercession. What's intercession? He prays for us. When we're off, the, we're off the reservation, what does he do? Does he, does he take shots at us? No, he comes alongside of us and he prays for us. Isn't that wonderful? Adoption, verse 26. Looky there. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters, sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized in Christ to put on Christ. Here we see adoption. Baptism is a sign of our adoption, just like circumcision was. Circumcision brought people into the covenant, didn't it? 
as sons, in, in, in this sense, we could say sons of Abraham. That's how the Orthodox Jews of old would have said, and even today, that's all they say. We're sons of Abraham. Now, they might not be able to prove their, their, uh, their uh, uh, genealogy all the way back to Abraham, but they say they're sons of Abraham. And in saying that, we're sons of God. We're sons of the faithful. Guess what? Even the little vacation Bible school songs get this right, don't they? We sing, Father Abraham was a, we have Father Abraham. How's that song go? I don't remember how it goes. <laughs> Asking you shall receive. <laughs> you know, you might not have thought about it much this morning when you come in here, but you're, if you're in faith, if you're in Christ, you're a son and daughter of Abraham. You're adopted. And God loves his adopted children. And if we're any doubt about that, look to the cross. What is he doing there? Dying to make it possible. Regeneration. Let's go to Titus 3.5. We only have a couple more to do and we're going to be done. You know, some of you are looking like it's, we're 40 minutes into this thing. We're almost, <laughs> I got my stopwatch here. Titus. Titus 3.5, page 999 if you're using the church's Bible. There we're told that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. You can't earn your way to heaven. That's one of the hardest things for us to get down because we try to earn our way to heaven, but you can't do it. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, notice that, washing of regeneration. It's not the generation of washing. It's the washing of regeneration, the big difference between the two. The washing of regeneration. Remember how I was talking about circumcision being that secret work in the heart? And I made a connection from there to what Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless a man's born again or a woman is born again, he or she cannot even see the kingdom of God, right? That's that secret work of, the, of, of, of God. And sometimes it's spoken to us this way, as a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is a sign of baptism of the Holy Spirit and this secret regenerating work. And God does this so... He, he does this so gently that I think for the most part, when most of us are, are coming into faith, we think we're doing it all, don't we? We think we're doing it all. And then you walk with him for a while and you suddenly discover, I, did, I, I didn't do this at all. The Lord did this. And he did this while I was kicking and screaming against him. He did this while I was his enemy. Yes, that is correct. Romans 6.3, resurrection in everlasting life. Romans 6.3. Be page uh, 942. 942, Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. What's going on there? That's a hard text to understand. I, I preached my, um, my ordination sermon from this text. I spent a month on this text. It's a hard one um, until you start to see that it's talking about union with Christ. This whole faith union, the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're brought into union with him. And there's a sense where when Jesus is on the cross dying, you die with him. The old person dies with him. 
And there's another sense on the third day when Jesus rises from the grave. That's so, that's so fundamentally important to us. Why? Because there's a sense where we're raised with him as well. Let's think about it. Jesus knows. Jesus didn't die for the possibility of salvation. Jesus died knowing those who were his. He's the good shepherd. And his shepherd, you know, the sheep know his voice. How do they know his voice? By God's work in their hearts. And he died for his sheep. If you're in faith this morning, you can be rest assured he had your mind on his, or your uh, soul on his mind as he was suffering and dying. That's stunning, isn't it? How many millions and millions of people? But here we were brought into the mind of God. You see, he can focus on millions and millions and even billions of people like there's only one to focus on. He can focus on us as if we're the only ones in the world. We often think we're the only ones in the world. But he can focus on us as if we really are. And he's brought to us everlasting life. And baptism is a sign of that, of everlasting life. As we look to this world, as we look to all the things that are going on in this world, think back to your baptism. Baptism is a sign that God has the strength and the ability and the desire to take us into resurrection life. Yeah, we're going to have some bumps on the road along the way, but he's going to get us there. Amen? Our sodomy admitted into the visible church. I just want to take a moment on this one. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This one's really important. They're all important. Someone say, okay, Rick, which one wasn't important? Well, they're all important, but if you look at 1 Corinthians, page 959, if you're using the church's Bible, and you look at verse 13, we're told there that for in one spirit... We were all baptized into what? One body. Now, here's a question. Are we in the body before we're baptized, or are we in the body only after we've been baptized? <laughs> Some of you don't want to answer. You don't. If you answer yes, you got it right. Some will say what? I went to seminary with an engineer. Both of us had some engineering training. I did electronic engineering early on. Um, he, he was a mechanical engineer, and this drove him nuts. You can answer the question yes to both. And someone said, wait a second, one has to be yes, the other one is. No, they're both yes. Okay, how does that work? Well, notice that in question 165, it talks about being solemnly admitted into the visible church. Solemnly admitted into the visible church. There, second line to the, from the bottom, parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church. The word solemnly, what does that mean? Formally. The moment you put your faith and your trust in Christ, you're brought into the body of Christ and you're brought into the church. Okay? So you're in the church. Now, what is the command? Jesus commands us to be baptized. Okay, does baptism bring us into the church? Yeah. We'll say, wait a second, I've already been brought into the church. Baptism solemnly admits us into the church. What's that mean? Okay, Tyler, for example, and I hope you don't mind me picking on you so much, but really it is your day, you know. He's, he's made a profession of faith. He's desirous to want to be, uh, to want to walk with Jesus. Um, and by that profession of faith... He's in union with Christ. So in one sense, he's already, he's already in the church. 
You know, it's God that does that. We don't do that. But God is desirous that baptism be done publicly, and it's a covenant sign, so it should be done before the covenant community. We're formalizing it, in a sense, or solemnizing it. We're not making it any more real. We're just simply recognizing it publicly that Tyler is going to be a member of Tri-State Community Church here in a few minutes. That's why baptism, just for the sake of baptism, it doesn't seem to work, does it? Baptism is actually, baptism is bringing people out of the world. What is, let's think back to the covenant of grace, grace again. What is God doing? He's going throughout the world. He's grabbing, if you will, he's grabbing people that are a mess. And what is he doing? He's bringing them into his church. Now, the moment he gives them faith and repentance, they're in the church. But he's called us to, uh, to uh, baptize, if you will. And upon baptism, we recognize this as a group of people that Tyler, in a few minutes, he's one of ours. Now, you can see why it's yes and yes, because I don't think anybody who come up the steps this morning would have considered Tyler anything but one of ours, right? Aubrey and Hawk. How many have considered Aubrey and Hawk apart from our church? There isn't a single hand. We have been thinking of Aubrey and Hawk as part of our church, haven't we? Yes. we got one little head going, yeah, of course. Dare you not say such thing otherwise, right? But we're making it formal. 